0: Okay. All right, so, yeah. um, we got people rolling in here. We can just get started. So, uh, for everyone that has hopped in, uh, we're here talking with Alex Merced. That's me. Okay. (laughs) He is the uh, vice chairman of the Libertarian National Committee. I hope you guys had a chance to check out some of the stuff. I posted uh, a few days ago his uh, YouTube, um, and on it he chronicles basically uh, his thoughts and, you know, movements as libertarian um, It's kind of like an intellectual journal of, uh, I guess, your your changes in views.
1: Yep, yep. Basically what happened was um, I was actually a, a far-left progressive prior to the 2008 election. Then I kind of got into the whole Ron Paul thing and literally just dug my head in all sorts of books about economics, philosophy, and one of the things i've always enjoyed is i like learning through teaching like whenever i teach something that i'm learning i understand it better so i created this youtube channel that i've been doing since 2008 where every time i learn something i'm i just kind of explained it and talked about it give my opinion interact with people just to help better again form what i believe and just better uh, uh absorb everything that that's coming in around me
0: okay so most of these questions are going to come from the users they won't be from me Um, If the phrase awkwardly, don't yell at me. Just yell at whoever it was. Um, But I I guess just to get this started, I'm really curious uh, about that. So, what would you say was the first thing, not like the most important thing, but the first thing that really got you moving down the libertarian track?
1: Got it. Uh, Basically, what happened was um, while I was in college, uh, back in, you know, I was in college from 2003 to 2007. Um, In 2006, I had opened up a comic book store with a friend of mine, and that one gave me at least a a deeper appreciation for running a business and taxes Even though at the point I didn't really wasn't connecting it to politics It was just me running a business, but then afterwards I decided to go to the Philippines for a month because the store closed and I had to go do an extra semester in college and I was trying to think okay How can I do this so and the funny thing is like I I, you know I was an uber broke college student So figuring out how to pay for all these things was interesting but um, I went to the Philippines for a month, and then the only news channel they had was Fox News, okay? And as, as a big old lefty at the time, I'm thinking, this is why the world doesn't like us. Um, so then what happens is there's this debate where uh, Giuliani is confronted by, uh, or Ron Paul and Giuliani kind of go off about the Iraq war and bringing the troops home. And I'm like, yeah, I just agree with everything that guy said. And for the rest of the debate, I'm like, everything he says, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I didn't think much about it at the time until I came back from the trip. And then I just started, you know, doing what a lot of the people did at the time watching a lot of these old videos of like Ron Paul saying this and that and you're like Yeah, there's something to do this and I, I looked more into it I asked a lot of questions I wasn't like oh, okay all this makes perfect sense right away but you know the more I looked into it the more I did the research the more I asked tough questions and kept sort of pushing the boundaries of my comfort zone uh, the more compelling it became and uh Basically, now I'm as pretty much as even though I like to think of myself as like the Mr. Rogers of libertarians, um, I'm about as hardcore libertarian as you can imagine.
0: <laughs> okay, and uh, before we jump into the user's questions, I also wanted to ask um, so I know uh, we originally scheduled for eight and you had a meeting come up. Totally mm-hmm. understand that we're real flexible here with all this stuff, but I'm curious. Because I've never talked to anyone that's in any kind of national committee for any political organization. Mm-hmm. Um, what is a day in the life of, you know, a chairman or vice chairman? Uh, wh- like, um, what is it that you guys do?
1: I mean, it's just basically like sitting on a board. Like if you were sitting on a, a, a board of a charity or a board of a, a corporation. Um, basically, there's certain decisions for the organization that the, the board has to make regarding allocating funds, allocating resources uh, of that particular organization. Um, now it's a little bit different than the libertarian party We don't have the same resources as republicans and democrats to have like full-time vice chairman uh, and chairman So basically me and the, the chairman nick so work. We you know, we have full-time jobs and families um, Like right now. I'm a programmer. I used to be a trainer in the financial industry um, so basically we meet four times a year and we discuss the business of the we discuss the business of the party but it's more it's more like a corporate governance kind of thing thinking okay here's here's the funds we're raising here's where we're putting those funds trying to figure out okay where are we getting a return on those funds as far as seeing our growth of memberships and growth of voter turnouts it's growing seeing a growth of sort of the overall libertarian movement and uh being sort of the steward of those of, of those resources for the for the party membership okay
0: and so without trying to we've actually had you know um at least one person uh running for the libertarian nomination on the server and we have another one mm-hmm. scheduled who are um the bi- you know the main people running at this point
1: I don't know it's 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 like the Democratic nomination you know you want everyone wants to think that they're the main person there's a lot of people i'll try the name as many as i can uh there's a lot um so let's see here i know you have adam Kokesh coming in in a couple of weeks um and i i've gotten to know all these people over the last few years they're all i consider them all friends uh mcafee's running uh former uh rhode island governor uh uh lincoln chafee's running um then there's uh, John Mons who ran for Governor of Georgia got over a million votes as a libertarian candidate, which is pretty awesome uh c- considering I think in uh, Gary Johnson's uh 2012 run, he got like one point3 million votes so just a, so that was a pretty awesome uh, result uh, then we have Joe Jorgensen who was actually a, the, our vice president candidate in the past she's running uh with she was a one of our vice presidential candidates in the 90s. Um, there's Dan Behrman, he's known as like the taxation theft guy, um, very smart guy, very good guy. Um, Adam Kokish, also a good guy, I've gotten to know him a lot for the years. I remember when I was like, a, again, back in the 2008, 2007 days, like, Kokish was a, sort of another figure that kind of you'd always see around, so it's kind of weird now I see him all the time. Um, who else is running? There's also, oh, there's so many, um, oh, there's Mark, Mark Whitney. Who is sort of a, a successful entrepreneur who's thrown his hat in the race and longtime party member. Um, oh, and then there's Jacob Hornberger, who's the founder of the the Foundation of Freedom Institute, uh, or the Future of Freedom Foundation, and he's basically like I remember when I first started learning libertarian ideas, like I read a lot of his literature, and he's like definitely a contributor to like a lot of the way I think, like him, people like him, Robert Murphy, Tom Woods, Fifth, their literature really kind of helped me. Build up a lot of my early knowledge.
0: Okay. All right. So we're going to dive into questions here. Um, just so you are prepared, like, you know, these are off the wall. We'll get questions that are serious and, you know, very, very, like, moving. And then we'll get some super basic, even funny questions, but they're all over the place and there's okay. no real order to them. So it's, um, the first one we've got here. Uh, what are your thoughts on stem cell research?
1: I'm all for any kind of scientific research. I mean, I've I, I had a father-in-law who who uh, suffered a lot from dementia, so anything that can help, like Alzheimer's, dementia, stuff like that, I'm all for that research. Um, I think a lot of people get confused with like a lot of libertarians, where they you know, or um, oftentimes where like libertarians will have sometimes be skeptical with how sometimes things get funded in a way, but doesn't necessarily mean we're skeptical of the idea. Like I'm all for more scientific research, all for these technologies that are gonna you know make our lives longer, or make our lives better, um, and so I'm for it.
0: Okay. All right. And uh, Jordan wants to know: Do you think that an and cap society is achievable
1: basically i mean i would consider myself pretty much just pretty much in that that vein but the way I, I the way i like to refer to myself is i like to think of myself as sort of uh an evolutionary libertarian in the sense that i think that's that is something that's kind of inevitable is it something you create like do we go okay hey we're gonna go create an, an capistan tomorrow i i'm, I'm skeptical of that I think, but it's, it's, it's a natural, if you take a look at the t- terms of history, uh, as technology has gotten better, so that we, we c- we've learned how to communicate better, uh, technology has gotten better, that the world has become a smaller place, uh, the power of, s- sort of the centralization of power at certain levels, especially at like, sort of geographical government type organizations has become less and less. And the individual's power to sort of be involved in things has gotten greater, especially through things like the internet. Um, that it just seems like, we're gonna inevitably move in that direction. Like, it's not gonna be something like, "Oh, let's go get rid of the government." It's gonna be more like, "You're not gonna even notice that it went away." It's kind of like parents. You know, you, you when you first are born, you kind of need your parents a lot. Um, but things change. You learn. You grow. And eventually, you don't even realize that you're no longer at your parents' home anymore. It just kind of happens. So, I do believe society will evolve in that direction. I do think there's a dynamic with governments that makes that take a longer time. Because, you know, like, sometimes you'll see, like, two sets of parents. Like, there's the parents who kind of teach their kids to eventually take care of themselves. And then there's the parents who coddle their kids so much that their kids always need them. Governments have Mm -hmm. a tendency just because of incentives to kind of fall in that second category. Um, and And that's... That's a thing, but I think in the macro sense, over time, we're just, we're just growing as a society. I mean, there is less violence in the world. Uh, all, we see a lot of the bad things in the world more because we're able to communicate better, but there's a lot less of it in the world because we can communicate better. And that's a trend that to me just will lead to a much more decentralized society over time.
0: All right, um, next question we have from Marcus Tullius Cicero. Uh, he asks is the voting method america uses first past the post fair
1: um, and no,
0: if not if not what's a good alternative
1: uh, no i mean basically first past the post voting has a ver- has a very predictable result it means all you need to do is get 51%. So when it comes to making the argument to the people, all you need to do is convince fifty-one percent of the people to hate the other forty-nine percent of the people. So this is where you end up with a very big polarization of politics that we see today, where basically the way your goal isn't to sit there and say, Hey, how can I be good for everybody? Because that's how you become everyone's second choice, and second choices don't win in first past the post politics. Um basically Again, you you convince 51% of the people to hate the other 49 and that's the dynamic we have today So whether it's things like approval voting ranked choice voting, I think pretty much anything like that Would lead to a better political culture like again. I as a libertarian of course. I want sort of less things to be decided in that realm Um, But to the extent that I think you would have much more median decision-making in that realm Uh, with other voting systems, I think that would be a a good step in the right direction. You'll have at least something that are a little bit closer to actual consensus.
0: Okay. And uh, Britt Bong asks, what are your thoughts on utilitarianism? And if you have a negative opinion, what do you believe is the preferred moral ethical system?
1: I mean, I don't think there's a perfect moral ethical system because I mean, everything, even utilitarianism can be very, um, can still end up being very subjective because what metrics matter? What metrics are you gonna be utilitarian over? So, you know, well, because different metrics conflict in what your decisions are as a utilitarian. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's also very hard if you just sit there and take like a, uh, I forget the word, but if you were just taking sort of a less utilitarian, more like absolute sort of principle rules kind of approach, it's hard to convince, unless people buy into what your principles are, it's hard to sit there and say, yeah, well, these principles are good. And you know, they just are, this just should be obvious. Um, And that's not necessarily very compelling and growing uh, adherence to a set of principles. So it should be a mix in the way you talk about it in the sense that there should be sort of, we should have some sort of moral boundaries that we don't cross regardless of the benefit in a sense. Like, you know, if someone could, someone tried to show me that, from a utilitarian point of view like some metric would be better if we just started like doing horrible things um we still still shouldn't do those horrible things but at the same time if if basically your strict rule set your strict dogma puts you in a position where everyone also where you also end up in a negative situation that's not good either um you have to kind of it's a it's a mix of both i mean at the end of the day everything's at the median and that's kind of like i I, when you when you kind of first get introduced to a political ideology uh whether it's progressivism, progressivism conservatism or libertarianism when you first kind of become that thing you're kind of always very energetic you're very angry because you feel like you've just discovered something that the world's hidden from you so i remember being sort of that younger libertarian who was like just kind of angering me like yeah, this is libertarianism. You should all get it you should all understand but over time You know, I think everyone moderates because you start realizing how much working How much to get the world you want requires cooperation of others? Um, and to me, that's what libertarianism is it's about its core It's about building that consent with others to make things happen and that things need to happen through several actions of micro consent uh, b- broadly for for th- to really have sustainable change um, instead of trying to, com- tr- instead of trying to say, "Hey, 51 percent of the people consent," so we're going to compel everything on everybody, we need to have a broader um, consent that occurs through sort of micro consensual actions. Um, so I kind of meandered from the original question, but the the, the but I think I, I think I did answer the question somewhere <laughs> along in there. <laughs> <laughs> no
0: worries, man. No worries. Uh, so next one we've got is from. Uh, Cato, he asked, what are your thoughts on the ATF, and what would a libertarian presidency do about it?
1: You know, like, liber- libert- like everyone in every uh, camp, whether again, progressive, conservative, libertarian, not everyone's the same, so, I mean, you know, there are, and if you take a look at the libertarian nomination process, like, there's very... Is there's a very diverse set? They're all libertarians. They all kind of believe where we're going But how they would handle it is very different So you might have a libertarian president who yeah, maybe on day one shuts closes the door puts a lock on the door You may have another libertarian that doesn't necessarily shake things up But tries to make the case to everybody to sit there and say hey Maybe we should move in this direction and try to build a consensus so that way society can Consents to move in that direction and starts kind of unwrapping the chains of power and the collections of power that existed mm. Well, i don't want to say there's like an absolute like, this is sort of the exactly how a libertarian presidency would be it depends who you're talking about but far as moving in the direction whether quickly or or, or, sh- or not quickly towards sort of you know again dismantling the reins of power making institutions more decentralized that are centralized uh, i think generally any libertarian president will kind of move in that direction
0: okay and if you were running for president uh, which would you want to do?
1: Um, basically, one of the things that's important to me, like in creating a libertarian world, is you could have absolute freedom in a sense that there are no barriers. But for things, for us, to all, we also want to live good lives and we also want to maintain that freedom. Okay. So basically, if you had like absolute freedom and then suddenly we didn't have some sort of level of respect for each other, some level of love for humanity. Um, but what happened is that you might have some people who are violent, and then very quickly people are going to ask, people are going to get scared and start asking for concentration of power again. So to me, it's always very important to try to create, um, try to create that air of let's respect each other, let's love each other. Um, that's one of the things that I ran on when I ran for vice chair, sort to of to be a more positive figure in the party, who who's promoting things like tolerance, forgiveness, uh, empathy, um, because basically I want there to be a free world, but I want that free world to be maintained. So that means we need we need to not end up in a situation where people are calling to control each other again and controlling each other comes generally comes out of fear hate things like that so to the extent that I want to maintain a freer world, I need to try to minimize those things in my actions in the example that I lead so if I were president uh, that would very be much in the way I act I don't want to necessarily seem like as much as I would want to change things overnight if I were to just do that, all I'm doing is acting like the dictator I'm trying to prevent um and that's it would be me trying to set an example, trying to make my case to the people and try to move the country in that direction um, and trying to actually encourage people to start fixing a lot of the issues that we need In their day-to-day lives um you know a lot of times we have these discussions about trying to do these big broad overarching policies and people organize for like 10 years to get them done and then at the end you end up with this sort of wishy-washy sort of mid washed down version of it because of all the political wrangling that had to come in between but in that 10 years all the money in politics could have gone to directly affecting the issue all that those man hours could have gone to directly affecting the issue um and that could have seen so much more of an effect um, during that time. So trying to get people to think more creatively about what the solution is, is also a very big part. And encouraging people to do creative solutions would be a big part of the messaging that I would put out there, the example that I would set.
0: All right, uh, so next question is from Frago. Mm-hmm. Frogo wants to know, do you have a bird? And if so, what kind?
1: Yes, I do. I have a bird. It's a cocktail. Um So you probably heard it chirping in the background. It's it's a it's a cocktail I've had for like two years, um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a, it's, a, it's a fun bird to have around. You know, we have to clean up after it, but that's that's pet life, right? But pet life makes life a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: right. Every now and then, pretty much every time we do one of these, I trip over one of my dog's toys that he sets out in front of me as I'm walking around the house. So. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> no, I totally, I, I relate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so I'm sorry. We'll move on to the next question. Um, uh, Alamo Ballard wants to know: Do you think the Electoral College should be abolished?
1: Um, I don't think I don't think in most cases it would make a huge difference. I think in like most elections they kind of go hand in hand. But I do think it's not. I don't think a pure um, popular vote, especially for countries as big as United States, is, is is necessarily wise either. I think, you know, moving towards different voting systems nationwide might actually be a, a much more smarter move. Not going to a you know first past the post popular vote. Not going because basically then you do have sort of very concentrated municipalities that have way outweighted political power. And it's not that, you know, it's, and the thing is the consideration when it comes to making a lot of decisions about the country as a whole. You know, there are a lot of interests in areas that have smaller populations. That affect the entire population in the sense that like a lot of those places that may have small less Population have resources that affect the entire country have industries that affect the entire country and You know if they aren't able to have a voice just because a few really big cities pretty much control the political conversation um, That's not necessarily a good thing either now. I understand both sides it's always frustrating when the dynamics of the politics of the day makes what you want to say harder to say trust me i i'm a libertarian this is this is this is my daily life um but um I, I i don't think it's i don't think the electoral college is necessarily unwise in the context of what the alternative would be now if the if the alternative was like ranked choice voting nationwide that'd be a different question
0: okay so this next one is one that i have actually uh personally struggled with a little bit and i think it's seriously one of the hardest questions that could be asked of a libertarian. Um, Recently in our uh, daily polls, one out of five, only one out of five users um, in a binary poll uh, said that they thought libertarianism is properly equipped to deal with the coronavirus. How would or, yeah, in your mind, how would libertarians deal with the coronavirus?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think whenever people ask, like, how would libertarians deal with this? it's, It's assuming that a response needs to be sort of centrally coordinated, and and the, so and basically, if you're talking about, hey, how would a libertarian handle a centrally coordinated response, that's generally not our mantra. But there would be the freedom to have many smaller responses. Now, is everyone going to respond as good as the others? No. But some people might respond better, and that's a thing. Like... We, we're we so scared of the worst case scenario that we prevent the best case scenario when we try to force the same solution Every everywhere and try to centralize all the solution making uh, But sometimes that best solution that may happen ends up being adopted quicker And you end up having a much better result for more people much quicker I mean, we see this in technology all the time where competition happens and you know Probably the when people first imagine like a smartphone you know they probably didn't imagine the options we had today, but because different people tried it someone probably came out with a much better version a much better idea and then everyone else copied it really quickly and that allowed a prol- proliferation of the best ideas happen really quick and then the really bad ideas just kind of went away because when people say oh that's and I get it I get it it's scary when you start thinking about like things like health and human life and whatnot but it, you' also it's also the possibility you might save more lives because if the better the best ideas proliferate faster that could be more lives are saved so the the fear of the, the the extreme worse should not mean that the extreme best is impossible not probable and i would say more more than probable is the median result i mean that's generally what, how life is everything kind of ends up in the median over time um, and then the, my last point on this is li- one thing people want certainty and this is why you know people always struggle with libertarianism because they they want to know that there's that there's a, there's a there's a certainty but the only thing that's certain in life is uncertainty and the more you try to make certain things certain the more uncertain they become. I mean, we see this in every aspect of our lives when people are controlling in their relationships because they are scared of losing their relationships, they're more likely to lose them. And that doesn't just go in your personal relationships, but it really comes across every aspect of, of social life and economic life.
0: Okay, Um. so our next question comes from Bird Lawyer. Bird Lawyer, are you here? Uh, Yeah, I'm here. Uh, My question is, um, how do you feel about uh, anarcho ideologies, and are there any in particular that appeal to you?
1: Um, I kind of alluded to that, like I, I mean, back in my earlier days when I was a much more sort of fiercely outspoken libertarian, like you can find videos on YouTube where I'm talking about how I refer to myself as an anarcho capitalist. I don't use the term anymore. One, it's like I just don't think most other anarcho capitalists would probably want sort of like again my view of more of an uh, an evolution of society getting to that point kind of view everyone a lot of probably people want expect that sort of more quicker hey we're going to make it happen overnight kind of deal um but the ideas of that sort of a a stateless society being a possibility and even something that's desirable um or i just think sort of and i I don't even think stateless because i think stateless misses the point it's not about whether there's a state or not it's about sort of decentralization and individual empowerment and i think that should that's where I like to focus my discussion, um, but yeah, there's like I don't, I don't have an issue with any kind of libertarian ideology. Like I have, I have a soft space, I have a soft spot in my heart for you know uh, left libertarians, right libertarians, moderate libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, georgists uh, or georgist libertarians. There's all sorts of variety within the libertarian movement, and a lot. And the great thing about all of them is that they're looking at it from a slightly different angle, and they bring slightly different social critiques and economic critiques to the world of today, and it makes, and instead of trying to sit there and choose one and say, hey, this is right, but looking at all of them and taking a look at their critique and what does it does say and try the best to try to reconcile it all, I think, makes for a richer perspective. So that's why I I less put myself in a particular bandwagon nowadays and just try to take them all in. Because I'm not trying to have a certain one win, I just wanna understand them all enough that I feel like I know better than I did before. So I like them all. I want to hear them all speak and that's what I love about the Libertarian Party that you have such a weird variety of opinions and Instead of trying to hush them they all get you they all get a microphone so that we can have that conversation I mean, you know You can have a John Mons and Adam Kokesh and a vermin supreme and a McAfee and a Joe Jorgensen on the stage with such a diverse approaches, such a diverse views, but still sort of at the core libertarian and and, and again, there's space for them and to me that's important because if we do want a more a world that's more inclusive That that inclusivity has to occur in the political space as well and that means we need to you know have be able to have a political apparatus that allows People who may not look like your traditional candidate be to be a candidate to put their name in the ring and be able to say What they want to say so when people criticize the Libertarian Party for um, Sometimes the optics of some of our more eccentric candidates. I'm like, you know I'm, I'm glad we have a party where those candidates can run because it means that we are trying to change the political culture of ours. Who does have the opportunity to speak?
0: Alright. And so I know there's also other anarcho groups such as anarcho syndicalist and narco communists. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on those other groups?
1: Um, I mean basically I do think, I think blockchain really kind of changed everything when it came to that conversation. Like, basically, from my understanding, okay, so anarcho-capitalists were kind of criticizing sort of, um, criticizing collections of power. So that's sort of like the main social critique there, the use of violence in society. While like in ando- anarcho-syndicalism and a lot of sort of more uh, left-wing, more anarchist ideas, the criticism is more about like social hierarchies and, and, and just sort of institutions that might create like inequality and this and that um to me though blockchain changed everything far as being able to reconcile those ideas because when i think about ideas like decentralized um applications or DApps, you start seeing that there's a business model that is maybe not feasible yet but going to be in the future where you have these decentralized basically imagine like i would create i'm a programmer i sit there and i create some sort of application that's decentralized distributed through blockchain but that that for that Enterprise to exist it needs people to decentralize participate and they all get rewarded with a token So you start seeing that hey, you know This is democratizing sort of who are the stakeholders in enterprise? So you still have free enterprise through the blockchain system But you're starting to see like the blockchain create a mechanism where those profits get distributed sort of in a more egalitarian way Not because anyone forced it not because anyone compelled it just because the incentives make sense Naturally based on the way it's designed and in a world where governments are becoming more and more intrusive on business It makes makes more and more sense to move toward a decentralized business model Which means sort of the, the long-term trajectory just seems to make sense that we're going to move in that direction And that's going to address both concerns the concerns of sort of you know uh, economic egalitarianism and the concerns of sort of you know centralization of power and the use of violence because blockchain in a, in a way just Democratizes all of that. Again, it's still a long way to get where it needs to be. So again, I'm not unsympathetic to those criticisms. I do weigh violence a lot more heavier than, uh, you know, the, uh, violence as an issue or something I want to avoid a lot higher than I would uh, weight necessarily inequality. Which is why I would say again to me why free markets matter. I mean to me and in free people when people that's why I don't use the word capitalism either. Because when people say capitalism, everyone means something different. Okay, like when I say capitalism, or when I used to say capitalism, I mean like free markets, where basically our interactions with each other are sort of free from compulsions of, of compulsion and violence. While a lot of other people may say capitalism, and they're sort of insinuating or assuming sort of these, you know, un unimbalanced power relationships, and assuming that they're all there every time. And when you don't sit there and have a discussion where you appreciate those differences and how you're approaching a word, um. It makes not for very fruitful discussion, which is why I tend tend to say, hey, I'm for free exchange. I just want people to be freely exchanged with each other. Goods, services, their ideas, their love for each other, um, the ability to travel. I just want people to be free.
0: Okay. Uh, Biscuit thinks that uh, socialism and communism have failed. He wants to know if you agree, and if you do agree, why do you think they failed?
1: in the in the in the sense that basically Basically where people think they can compel an idea. Yes, okay, um, and I think all ideas fail on large scales Okay, basically whenever you try to force a lot of people to do something It's just generally not going to work people don't work that way But again in small scales you can take a look at like kibbutzes and communes where there are little small communities where basically everything is distributed in an egalitarian way where basically they do away with sort of monetary exchange within the community and they are able to function, but the reason they can function is partly because, in the grander scheme of things, now going into a little bit the economics of it, there's still a pricing system. There's still a market surrounding these small pockets of, of, of sort of micro voluntary socialism, because because one of the issues when you try to do socialism on a grand scale, people always you know when you when you saw like a lot of the economists. Debate socialism, their main critique was always like the incentives, like, oh, the incentives aren't there. So, you know, if you tell people that they're not going to make any more, they're not going to work any harder, which is, that's a, that's a fair critique and that's an accurate critique. But the better critique was the calculation critique of people like uh, Louis Von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, where the focus was if you don't have prices, you don't have nothing that's kind of communicating to society how to allocate its resources. Like, there's a finite amount of steel. And it's like a million, let's say hundreds of things I can create with that steel. How do I know how much of each one do I need? It's not like I have this ima- magical knowledge of what everyone wants and needs and how to balance out, those, how to balance out all those interests. So all those little micro transactions, all those micro consensual transactions that occur create prices and those prices sort of help communicate what we need. So a small instance of socialism like a commune or a kibbutz, they can manage their resources better because those prices are being formed around them. Um, mm-hmm. And they're and they're consensual, so the people who want to be are in it want to be part of that situation. But again, if you compel people into a mass sort of that kind of setup, again, you're not going to have prices to help dictate um, how you allocate resources. You're going to have huge misallocations of resources, as we saw in Mao Ch- Mao's China and in Soviet Russia. Um, and then, two, you are going to have a bunch of people who didn't consent, who probably are going to be not the best. They're not going to really. Go with the game plan. <laughs> so um, I I do think socialism, sort of as a man as a way to in mass run society, has failed. But do I think that the concept of running a, a small society or a small, you know, a small community that way? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I think pretty much any kind of consensual arrangement among people is fine. Usually, the fact that it is consensual makes it work. Um, and that's why you have such diverse consensual arrangements in all of our and throughout all of our life. Um, and one last point on that is that consent is sort of the missing piece that matters because consent is what makes things sustainable. So for example, a relationship. Um, It's consent that makes a relationship not just survive, but work because you always have an incentive to be good to the person you're with because you're scared that they may withdraw their consent from the relationship and vice versa They're gonna be good to you because they're scared that you may when they decide you don't want to be part of this relationship So long as you guys both want to be part of this relationship. You have an incentive to do good for each other Um and usually when relationships become abusive is when that sort of dynamic disappears where one person feels like they can't leave the relationship They forget that this is where the piece of the consents kind of disappeared even though it doesn't there is no law or rule forcing or removing consent, but if psychologically the consent is gone, then th- there's this, there is that power dynamic where suddenly now relationships become abusive. And that goes for all of society. Um, sometimes we formally remove consent through like means like government, and other times it's other, through other psychological and social dynamics, which kinda consent sort of evaporates and, and certain relationships become very abusive. And I think, you know, making sure that we foster a place where people always remember that everything is consensual and that they have the power to change things. And not every time you have to make a decision is it gonna be easy, but you can. And reminding people of that, um, I think would make for a better life for everybody.
0: Okay, so I know you've, um, I wanna get to more users' questions. Mm -hmm. I know you've already partially addressed this question, Mm -hmm. but um, someone just told me that there is breaking news on this. Donald Trump uh, just banned all travel from mainland Europe to the US for 30 days as a measure to try to combat coronavirus. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I am all for free travel. I, 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 I'm not a big fan of bans, period. Um, to me, any time you try to ban something, it just makes the problem oftentimes worse, but also makes it harder to identify. Um I always like basically another big theme and I think among libertarians but just I think a theme among with me in general is just my my disdain for black markets. Um well black markets can be a freeing thing when there is oppression. Black markets are not as good as op- as transparent uh you know legal markets in the sense that you lack quality control, worse outcomes. So I mean the easiest example is always like the drug situation where basically, you know, Black market and it's not because something just is illegal like something could be legal and you still have black markets It's when you make it hard enough to get um, That people avoid getting it the legal way because it's too difficult to get the legal way Um, so things like with drugs, you know people have to go to um, You know criminal to to criminal organizations to go procure their recreational drugs. They have to um, Hello birdie they uh, uh, then they overdose more often because they don't know what the quality of what they're buying is. Uh, there's more violence on both sides uh, o- over it all. So overall, it's just the, the, and then you have the whole criminal justice system and how this creates all sorts of really uh, uh, unequal outcomes and horrible and and creates sort of systematic breaking down of neighborhoods over time. Like, there's all these really sort of bad outcomes all because you, you say, hey, we're gonna prevent this thing. And this is the same thing we see in immigration. I mean, Ill- illegal immigration is the black market for immigration. And in the same way, you, you, you see, you know, growth. Any, any, the problem isn't immigration. We want more immigration. Immigration means it's not just more workers, but it's more entrepreneurs. It's more friends, more family, more uh, artists, more, you know, designers. I mean, every, People are so many things more than just, are they another worker who's competing for me for a job? Um, they're also like the person who buys stuff that means I get to keep my job, or the person who starts a business so that way I can get a job. But it even goes beyond economics, that person, that person who immigrates could be you know, my spouse, or the person who you know, is a lifelong friend. So I want more immigration. And then I want, there to be, I want immigration to be as broadly and available as possible, but I want it to be openly. Uh, in an open markets because then again you don't have all those sort of bad um, bad outcomes from black markets and that's kind of the way I pretty much feel about anytime anyone says ban this um, you're going to end up with those outcomes I know the the intention's always like there's always this sort of noble intention at its core or this sort of pragmatism that is at its core but the outcomes are never good of trying to you know tax things away or trying to ban things away mm mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so we do have a lot of users in here who've been waiting very patiently. I want to try to get the questions of the users who have been here. Um, we have a lot of people uh, around the world, so I've been asking a lot of questions. People that wrote earlier who couldn't make it. Um, Patriot wants to know: Should the minimum wage be as low as possible? If so, how would it benefit society?
1: Um, well, I mean, one, I, I don't think th- I don't think there should be. I don't believe in any price fixing. Um, so, in the in, in the sense that minimum wage is price fixing um and then a lot of countries that people will point to in europe as very successful don't have a minimum wage yes they have other sort of safety net programs but you're not messing around with prices directly and uh, let's just to kind of put it in perspective uh how th- there's different ways that the minimum wage has an effect and honestly i've done like 30 minute videos on this so i'm not gonna be able to get to all the points i want to make on this but i do recommend going to youtube and watching a So many videos I've done on the minimum wage, but my favorite argument on this is just I think illustrates the idea Um, It's been a while since I made this uh, argument, but basically Imagine this you are if I were to sit there and say every uh, all sandwiches uh, Again, I I can already anticipate some of the issues that gonna have with this analogy But let's say all sandwiches or all burgers have to be at least ten dollars So you cannot buy a burger for less than ten dollars, okay? so like that's generally the price of like a Shake Shack burger which is generally considered a higher quality burger and most of the lower quality burgers are McDonald's so you're saying okay if I have a choice between these two burgers and I gotta pay ten dollars either way which one are you gonna buy you're gonna go buy the Shake Shack burger and now no one's ever gonna buy that burger at McDonald's again um because if I have to pay the same price why don't I buy the better one okay that's kind of what happens with the minimum wage you're saying hey this is the least you can pay but the problem is that doesn't change the fact that if I have to pay that price I might as well get my money's worth um so then people are going to make different decisions as far as who they hire um and then and you can do the same thing if you did like a maximum wage okay if i have to if i'm going to pay this much then you know i'm going to take go with the person who's willing to take that much and it's um again i've i've made this analogy a few times better in the past but that's sort of one dynamic but also there's all these incentive changes so like for example if there's two jobs and one job is sort of a job that requires like the reason you have income differentials is because, like for example, why a programmer makes so much money, and that's changing. I mean, um, in in many areas, programmer programmer income has gone down as more programmers have entered the market. Still, I guess it's still definitely above average, but um, it's because there's a risk. I mean, it takes a long time to train uh, to be a programmer, although that's been addressed more recently, which causes causes some of the changes. Um, there's a risk in having to take downtime to specialize in something. There's an amount of time that it takes to specialize in something and costs that are involved with that. So the reward at the end is kind of commensurate with sort of all those inputs. Um, other times, and then, there are, and then again, that's not always the story with every situation where there's huge, vast uh, differences in income. But generally, if you start looking under the hood, you start seeing that like there's some of these things that are at play as far as, okay, why is this? Now again, are there some situations where some people get paid like a ridiculous amount of money and probably don't deserve it? Sure. But the problem is when you start trying to create policies to sort of tinker with that you're going to end up hurting probably more people who do deserve what they're getting who have worked hard to like screw with like a handful of people who, you know, you know, they're just sucks at the, you know, just you know, you want to spike them because they're lucky. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, that and then also it spurs like uh, when you increase a cost, businesses are naturally going to want to try to optimize to reduce that cost. So this is what kind of happens with automation and the thing is, you're not going to see that in the data very much because what happens is that like if you raise the minimum wage which has happened you know and mcdonald's invest in in trying to come up with these machines to automate order taking in like seattle and certain and California in uh what was it uh, i forget uh berkeley i think raised their minimum wage and then new york raised their minimum wage i'm in new york i should know that off the top of my head um places like that the thing is that once they invent the technology there's no reason why they can't just roll it out everywhere so then, what happens it ends up decreasing the overall demand for labor everywhere because that optimization in one area becomes adoptable everywhere, so you know if we wanna force them to optimize costs we we don't wanna force them to optimize labor costs by by artificially increasing the demand uh the cost of labor okay um you rather they would you know they would be innovating somewhere else that isn't gonna necessarily cost people's jobs um so that's another thing with minimum wage. Again, you're changing the incentive someone might, you change like whether people's gonna make the decision to train for this job versus take this job because if they're too close in pay, the, the benefit of doing the extra training or doing the extra effort for this job might not be worth it. And I get it, like the last 10 years, like the economy's been stagnating and, and basically there hasn't necessarily always felt like there's enough jobs to go around and the jobs that are available oftentimes feel like they require such a specialized skill set that it's tough to sit there and go out there and find a job to go take care of your family and kids and you know, I, I I understand all that and there's a lot the thing is that there's no quick fix for all that because those problems have Occurred from a lot of bad decisions that have occurred l- over time uh, that have limited the ability for the economy to necessarily grow the um, the pie even though the pie is growing and it's it's growing, but um, There's definitely things we've done to sort of slow down that growth um, over time uh, so I c- again, I can go on a long time about the minimum wage uh, there's countries that have Modify their minimum wage to very positive expense in the sense where they sit there and say, okay, if you're like a, a below a certain age, the minimum wage doesn't apply to you, which allows sort of younger people to get those entry level jobs. And even though they get paid less, they get experience. You know, there's different takes on it, but the sort of, Hey, we're going to set a real high price for everybody all the time that you, 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 you're seeing like a lot, just in general like a lot of european policies that people try to point to are oftentimes a lot more complicated Than the way they're trying to implement them here in the united states people are just taking what they saw on the surface in europe Um and trying to implement them here and like I highly recommend people read the work of johan nuremberg especially about like uh, he, I th- He's from sweden and just talks about sort of like how a lot of these european countries are a lot more market oriented uh than the policies that we're trying to take from them. And like a lot of the policies that make a lot of those other policies work is the more market oriented policies and, and the, the dividends that come from them.
0: Okay. So I've really got to ask them because I know uh, you didn't mention it, but you alluded to it. What are your thoughts on Bernie Sanders?
1: Um, Personally, I, as, 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 as a person, I have a lot of respect for Bernie Sanders. OK, like in the sense that some because he appeals to and the reason he appeals to younger people is in the same way that Ron Paul appealed to me when I was younger, was when you're young, you're idealistic. And the whole world's telling you you can't be that way. The whole world's telling you you have to give up the hope that the world can be better. Um, and then because you see every adult and they're kind of all more cynical and more whatnot to see somebody who for 40 years has beat the same drum. Stuck to the same message, never gave up on their ideals. is very inspiring, especially if you're younger, because you're basically telling you a message that you don't have to, you don't have to give up on your dreams. You don't have to give up on hope, um, and that's a very uplifting message. So that aspect of like, and similarity between Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders, I have a lot of respect for both of them for their integrity, for their consistency over the years, and I think that's why they've had such a huge appeal with younger voters. Um, now, as far as policy-wise, I totally disagree with Bernie Sanders. I, I for the, Basically, I, I do think he has a very colored view of a lot of the policies he advocates for, or and how, and also a colored view of how they are implemented in the places that he cites, um, and, and and ignores a lot of the other factors of the other policies that exist in those countries that kind of balance things out, and even then, it doesn't necessarily always work perfectly. If you take a look at like a lot of the budgeting issues and long-term trajectories financially these some of these some of these countries are in um or where they where they came from some of these countries were very wealthy before they implemented these policies are are still wealthy but they're less wealthy it's kind of like that joke like how do you get a what's the best way to make a small fortune by starting with a large fortune (laughs) you know um especially in specific like countries like sweden where it was a wealthier country and it's still a wealthy country but it's a less wealthier country um that's why it was able to do a lot of the things it did uh, but on top of sort of more broad taxing uh, that sort of is much more distributed uh, versus sort of, you know, a strict tax on the wealthy. Um, so, yeah, no, I have a lot of disagreements with Bernie Sanders, but I have a lot of respect for him because, uh, you know, it's it's nice to see people who can – it's nice to see people who can hold on to their ideals. Even if I disagree with them, the fact that you can hope and, and not, the world doesn't break you is, 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 is a nice thing.
0: All right. Uh, Sontox wants to know – who do you think was the worst U.S. president ever?
1: <laughs> um, wow, worse. You have a lot of contenders. I mean, I'm not a big fan of any president. <laughs> to tell you the truth, like I'm just not. I'm not a fan of the idea of sort of that I, that amount of power being vested in anyone's hands, and so um, I don't think anyone can effectively wield it. Um, that's why you take a look at every president; they've all made really big mistakes um and oftentimes when you are that person when you are the president you know you don't know everything and you're being quickly told a bunch of stuff by a bunch of advisors and you don't have time to hear every opinion in the room by everybody so you're just taking in a lot of information and making decisions super quick so you end up making a lot of decisions um and sometimes you make decisions because you're not coming with a decision but there's enough people who are just around you who tell you we just make you feel like, okay, this is, must be the right decision because this is the people who I have around me because my party apparatus told me these are the people who I need to have as my advisors. Um, and that's not good either. Um, and then you have Donald Trump <laughs> who just kind of makes decisions, who just seems to kind of make the decisions he wants or really kind of makes the decisions more as a sort of a political chess player. So it's, um, you know, and that's also been very bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean I would say that kind of scares me a little bit more. So I might have to put Trump in the category. But I'm also, I, I, but I think a lot of people really underappreciate sort of the damage uh, of a lot of what FDR did. Not, and I know people are gonna talk about like a lot of things sort of in the most positive light, because again, surface level. But there are really a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of bad things that set really long entrenched. Uh, so again, it's not when I say like oh. This was maybe a bad presidency it doesn't mean like i don't i think the person's a bad person it's just i think there were some very large consequential decisions made during that time i don't think there are i don't think trump's decisions are going to be as consequential because i don't think he is as um he is in a cultural space his decision making is considered sort of erratic so a reversion to the norm seems to make sense over time um so I, i think his sort of where he will have an effect is sort of like, you know, uh, his effect on sort of the judicial system and a lot of the courts that where he's been able to appoint judges to. And and, is, and now it's like kind of with Biden being the nominee, probably being the nominee, looks like he's bought, Trump will have a second term. So probably appoint even more judges. So that will have a lasting effect. But that's not really a Trump thing more than it's a Republican thing, because at the end of the day, I don't think Trump's in there like picking all the judges. It's really like, OK, here's a list of all the rep- people, the Republicans were looking to put in judgeships anyways. Um, so in the areas that are going to have a lasting impact, it's more like a Republican impact, less than a Trump impact. And the things where Trump did is has a specific impact. Um, the one shining, uh, shining uh, silver lining is that at least over the last few years, people have cared to talk about politics. Not and I don't, it's not that we should be spending our time talking about politics. There's so much more to life, but in the sense that p- people are finally finding to care more about what's going on in the world around them and some of the details and asking tougher questions. I think that's a good thing. Like, it, like the 2016 election really kind of shattered apathy broadly across the board. Um, you know, Sometimes really horrible things have to happen to do that, but sometimes in the long run, that's better <laughs> in the sense that that sets up a foundation for a more active society. We're more involved in civic society, which will be a good thing. In, in in the long run, just the the, the, the last few years have been quite uh, quite uh, depressing. <laughs>
0: All right. So uh, Burkarov wants to know if he wanted to get involved with a libertarian campaign, where would the resources for that be?
1: Um, the best thing you can do is try to contact the candidate, <laughs> and usually you can actually like. Here's the thing: like I, there are some for most people in the libertarian party you could probably just hit you you can email the party you can go to lp.org and message the party you can go to the state party and message them you can go to the county party and message them and they'll get you involved with the right people tell you what campaigns are running but being sort of you know while we're still the the third largest party we're still a, a very much sort of in a, a startup of parties um so you you could usually just contact the content the, the 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 candidate or anyone on their staff pretty directly to get involved and and we're always wanting for volunteers i mean the problem always always the trouble is is that when you have the bond like when you don't have the volunteers there's just not enough hands to get everything done and then when you have the volunteers there's just not enough time to coordinate all of them so if you want to be a volunteer um, one of the best things you can do as a volunteer is help coordinate volunteers because that'll make your impact 10 times more if there's someone kind of helping keep track of sort of who's, who's, who are the hands on deck and where are their hands in uh, for more effective instead of everyone just kind of wandering um, so just reach out just reach out and then you, you can always just reach out and then me I'm pretty easy to reach you can just reach out to me on Facebook and uh, I'll get you in touch with your your, your, your local candidates and uh, your, state, your state organization I try to be a very welcoming face for the party
0: all right. Uh, Anon wants to know, would you ever move to the Free State Project?
1: Oh, I want to. <laughs> I'd like to move to New Hampshire at some point. I think in the short run, I want to be moving to uh, Florida. Um, but, yeah, know, I-, I wouldn't mind retiring in New Hampshire at some point. I do, I've been to New Hampshire. I very much enjoy uh enjoyed my time up there and i would definitely i do hope to come back again soon and maybe even attend pork fest uh at some point it's definitely been on my short list like that and uh, uh liberty con and a few um south by southwest you know so this has been an, a, a horrible year for all the events i would like to attend
0: <laughs> Uh and also wants to add that he wants to go to pork fest
1: so <laughs> yes one of these years i want to i, I want to
0: Uh, Bate wants to know, do you think libertarianism would lead to humans being happier overall?
1: Yeah, um, yes. I think so. Because it's like, people don't realize, like, like libertarianism is not, like, it's not a system. It's a state. It's a state of just sort of broad, where basically we're, again, all sort of allocations of time resources is happening on sort of micro consensual levels and when you make consensual decisions you don't always make the right decision but that's how we learn a lot okay a lot of the things i learned as a kid is i I made bad choices and then i learned not to make that choice again or i made good decisions and i tried to repeat that same thing again and that made me better in the long run i you, you it's a learning process and that's what libertarianism is we're just saying that hey you know what there's, there are all these, these situations. So all the concerns that progressives and conservatives have, there's truths, ounces of truth throughout all of it. And yes, there are, sh- there are problems in s- that society needs to figure out. But we're not going to just figure it out by compelling a solution. We need to discover and learn what that solution is. And we need to do it together through micro actions of consent. Um, and that is essentially what we're saying. So you're not going to fix it overnight. But if you allow people to kind of try things and try to discover what it is, you'll find it a lot quicker. Um, again, still won't be overnight, but I rather do—I rather learn something quicker through small trial and error instead of doing one big experiment on everybody. It fails horribly, and now you're stuck with it for the next 20, 30, 40 years, if not forever. Um, and you know, I rather not add and compound costs when we can, you know, slowly work our way up. Um, you know, slow and steady wins the race. So, yeah, I think people would be happier. I think people are, and also I just think the act of consent, the act of making decisions for yourself, makes people happier in itself.
0: All right, and uh, Coco wants to know, excuse me, sorry, uh, what are your thoughts on Georgism?
1: I don't have a lot of thoughts on Georgism. Um, I'm loosely familiar with it. so I haven't. I, so, excuse any sort of mischaracterizations I make of it but from from my understanding is basically i mean there's a lot that henry george wrote but sort of the thing that people always focus on is the whole idea of like a land value tax and sort of land as being sort of something different than all other goods and services because it's like there um so in that case it's pr- it can be justified in a libertarian sense to tax land and that basically to the extent that you have a government it should be taxed by a land value tax on the unimproved value of the land meaning you know the value of the land minus the house you built on it. Um, I just one I just don't. No, there isn't a perfect way to value. Uh, I don't. You know, and then you end up with all these debates. Like how do you how do you value the unimproved land and how much how high that tax should be? You know, and then you just just kind of get off in this like tangent and you you lose sight of you know what I a core I want to talk about, which is is allowing people. To be able to consent is that as many interactions as they can in their in their life um you know and to the extent that they earned resources or they have resources that it will help them consent to things they want to do um i don't want to take those resources um and i don't want to find the perfect way to, to take those resources i just want to find ways to take less um so i i, I don't have any huge sort of like I don't, I don't get, like, angry at Georgists. Most Georgists I've met, I generally agree with on most issues most of the time. Um, but generally on, like, the whole, the whole land value tax thing, I just – I never quite – it never quite – I never got persuaded.
0: Okay. So we've been going at this for an hour. I know originally – I think we originally scheduled to go until 10. Um, did you want to head off, or did you have time to answer a few more questions?
1: I can take a few more okay
0: uh let's see um where was this one i had a good one here sorry um yeah uh the man wants to know uh would you support the u.s leaving nato
1: um i mean i guess so like i i'm i mean i do do i am not against sort of multinational organizations but I would prefer that they're multinational because individuals from those nations join them, not because governments of different nations join them. I, re- I think, um, you know, for, again, to the extent that you can put the, this, the power, the, the influence in the individuals' hands versus sort of politicians' hands, I would prefer it. Um, so, I'm all for sort of multinational court coordination, but I would want it to be done in a more consensual level, not through governments consenting, but through individuals consenting um, and deciding to join any organization. So, if they want to have an organization like NATO and the people individually want to join and whatnot, I, to me that'd be preferred. Again, that's in today's context, that's probably a sort of pie in the sky thinking in today's world but i don't see i don't i don't find it unproductive to at least think in those terms or thinking hey this is this is an idea maybe we want to get out there and start thinking and dwelling on on how can you move in that direction
0: uh wants to know how long until you think the libertarian party will receive federal funding like the republicans and democrats uh
1: i don't have any i don't have a particular time frame on it i mean really with the libertarian party should be and is focusing on now is on local races i mean basically when you run for your local city council race that's a race anybody can win because you can go knock on the doors and meet the actual voters and build a relationship with them when you know um same thing with like mayor races except in like new york city and like new york city even like the smallest election is like running for governor of another state um but what happens is The reason why someone can win, like a state legislature seat, like, so if you're like a Democrat running for a state legislature seat in some district somewhere, you're able to win, not just because, you know, your campaign, but because there's all these other little mini campaigns running for the city council seats, running for, um, you know, other legislature seats, the campaign that's running for governor, the campaign that's running for senator, like, all these other campaigns at different layers all compound to make those wins possible. Okay, And in those smaller races, but the thing is that we need to build the credibility and that happens at those smallest races that are most winnable because we don't necessarily have mm-hmm. the resources to be running quite the, the layers of campaigns that Republicans and Democrats can currently run. But we're nimble and we can try out different things. And that's one of the things why we have been successful, uh, as successful as we have because we are, we are literally an example of our best ideas. We are literally a free market for activism. You know, you go into the Libertarian Party, you're going to find lots of different people doing very different things and trying to fight for the Libertarian cause in different ways. And sometimes what they try works and sometimes what they try doesn't. And generally the ones that do well get copied and the ones that don't, well, don't. Um, So that allowed us to do a lot more with less resources because you're learning how to use those resources better. But I do think we still have some time. We need to build that sort of that, 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 uh, that bench of sort of lower ballot wins, which w- that's been growing over the years. We're winning mayors. We're winning huge city, city uh, county council races. Um, you know, when I think of like Jeff Hewitt over there in Riverside County, we um, come really close to winning very huge uh, state legislature races. Like in Wyoming, uh, Bethany Baldez almost beat the Senate majority leader, uh, the Republican Senate majority leader in that state. And they actually announced her as the winner. Um, and then at the last minute, they found like 500 votes and that changed the results. Um, so, you know, there's amazing things happening. Um, but it's not going to be the stuff that's going to be national headlines yet, but we're growing and, uh, we're organizing and we're seeing a lot of dividends come from the investments that have been made over the years.
0: All right. Um, (laughs) Marx's boy wants to know how can a socioeconomic system, which guarantees absolute economic freedom for the bourgeois class, likewise guarantee labor rights?
1: like i said there's no certainty in life um you know basically when people are free there's gonna be things that are question marks and to what it but that's it's like tug-of-war okay so in tug-of-war most of the time one side, most of the most of the time you're basically both both sides don't move okay both Both parties want to win both sides want to win but it's because they're pulling on each other it ends up you end up staying sort of in a state of balance and that is sort of a state of freedom everyone's kind of pulling in a different direction and those those directions oftentimes can conflict but that creates a sort of more distributed and broad balance but there's no certainty of it there's no certainty in anything and if anything when you try to create certainty of Oh, we're going to create certainty that there'll be no bourgeois. You end up creating a permanent bourgeois class like you've seen in like, again, places like Soviet, Russia, and Mao, where basically the politically connected become the new bourgeois because they have all the power and they have access to all the resources and hoard it for themselves um, because they have those connections. All you're doing is just changing who's the bourgeois because you're trying to, because you want to punish the current bourgeois. (laughs) And that to me isn't necessarily uh, uh, a better, that to me is not a better outcome.
0: Uh, Jordan wants to know uh, who are your favorite authors who have been the most influential on your libertarian
1: views? Um, Hayek, Mises, uh, Rothbard, uh, Nozick, um, Kling. If you go to my website alexmerced.com, and actually have another website libertarian101.com I do have a reading list of books I recommend. Um, Some of the books that I think probably are sort of Like there's a lot of books that, you know, if you're familiar with libertarian literature, everyone's heard of like, um, you know, anything by Hayek and Mises um, or Ayn Rand novels or Heinlein novels like those. That stuff gets usually a lot of sort of uh, attention. But I mean, like books like Invisible Wealth by Arnold Kling and Nick Schultz, I think was a really good book. It doesn't it's not necessarily a libertarian book. It's not like making a case for liberty It's making a case for how important informal institutions are. But the conclusions are very libertarian. Um, the book, The Moral Molecule by Paul Zak, he's a neuroeconomist who actually basically studies the releases of oxytocin in economic transactions. And again, it's, it's more of a book that combines economics with science, but the conclusions are very libertarian. Um, you know, in a lot of those books, I create, I think, it com- I'm heavily convinced that we're just basically hardwired for consent. And consent happens within the realm of freedom because that's what consent is. You're choosing to do something. If you weren't free to make that choice, then you can't consent. So if we get a high off consenting to things, like literally we get a high off consenting, then the only way we're literally genetically wired to be within a realm or in a space of freedom.
0: Okay. Um, and related Harold wants to know what are your thoughts on Ayn Rand's objectivism
1: I haven't read it I haven't read it I've only read Anthem by Ayn Rand I did enjoy it it was actually a book I read in like sixth grade and it had an impact in the way I thought about individualism and creativity at the time um, I wasn't I didn't become a libertarian because of the book but it definitely affected my me having sort of a huge value for the ability to give out give your opinion to have an opinion um to You know be proud to be different to be proud to be good Um, That was kind of what I got out of that particular book. It's just a really quick read I highly recommend it. I never read Atlas Shrug. I'm familiar with the story. I'm familiar with Fountainhead. I just never read them Um, And then another really good book. is like stranger in a strange land by Robert Highland, which is another good book um, Which is definitely more story than it than it's like it's it's less sort of overbearing with its message than let's say an Ayn Rand novel, but also very good.
0: Okay. Last question here. Oh, someone's reading another one. So uh, if you got time, we can pull out a couple more here. Um, So libertarianism, isn't it pretty much just uh, an ideology for straight white men?
1: Well... I don't quite fall in any, most of those categories. I am a man, um, and but I, I'm, I'm a Latino man. I, my mom's from Guatemala, my dad's from Puerto Rico. Um, and then I know like my good buddy Larry Sharp, who ran for governor here in New York. He's he's, he's, he's uh, half white, half black. And um, when I think of uh, our, our John Hospers, our, our, I think he was our first presidential candidate. He was an openly gay man. Uh, you have um, John Mons, who's running right now for president, who who's also black, and uh, Joe Jorgensen, who's a woman. Um, you have, you know, you have you have a variety, you have a variety, of, and then you have people like who I've served on the committee with, who include women, members of the LGBT community um, on the national committee. It's a, it's a really diverse party. Now, of course, you know, like if you were to sit there and I like, figure out the percentages of like this group and that group, I don't think it, it's too far from sort of what the, na- the national is. I mean, I do think we maybe have a, we're a little over, like, percentage-wise, probably have more straight white men than many other groups. But it's not the only thing we have. And it's not the only people we speak for. Um, you know, we speak for anybody with, because the idea of freedom benefits everybody. Everybody has something in their life where someone has gotten in their way, where some policies gotten in their way, or, or basically they got taxed so much that they weren't able to pursue some dream. Um, or, you know, some, or basically the drug war, you know, basically, put family away or basically just creating so many laws and creating making everything a crime has allowed sort of abuses within the justice system that affects all sorts of different neighborhoods, especially those that are, are, that are impoverished. And so there, there's the Libertarian Party tries to be a voice for everybody who doesn't have a voice um, more so than I think any other organization, because, you know, as a as a smaller organization, we don't have as much stakes in, in catering to sort of popular opinion. You know, we're saying, hey, you know what? You would be better off if you were free, and we're going to work towards that. And that—that's something that appeals to everybody.
0: Okay, uh, I like this question. Coco wants to know: Do you consider private firms to be better than worker cooperatives, such as the ones seen in market socialist economies like Yugoslavia?
1: Depends on the business. Um, I—it's like again, I don't think there's—I'm not. I have no nothing against any kind of. Voluntary organization, and I do think cooperatives in certain situations can be actually very viable uh, ways of organizing. Um, when it comes to new ideas, like new technologies, new things, I don't, I don't think worker co-ops are nimble enough in decision making to, to be sort of the dominant type of organization in sort of newer industries. But I do see that, like you know, a business that, let's say, you have a new business, it starts out like your traditional sort of business. Um, You know, it grows, there's a lot of, you know, basically it has higher than normal profit margins because it has less competition in a newer sort of riskier industry that invites sort of capital investment. But over time, those profit margins disappear. Any industry becomes more competitive, those profit margins disappear. At that time, it it would make sense if there was some sort of mechanism, and I've suggested this to financiers, that this would be a good financial product to create a financial product where, you know, for a mature business, there you create a financial product that allows the the, the people who are employed at the company just basically kind of like it's like the rever i want to call it going private but I mean I guess you can call it like going worker in the sense that basically a worker buyout in a sense create some sort of financing mechanism for mature companies because I think at that point it makes a lot more sense to have a worker cooperative a lot of the systems are in place um you've had a lot of the same people in a lot of those positions for a long time so it, it just the the governance and incentives make a lot a lot of sense but saying hey every organization should be a workers cooperative or a consumer cooperative like a lot of grocery stores um like when you think food co-ops and stuff like that should everything be that no but should there be none of that no i think especially like food co-ops they're like great community points okay they're not gonna be the cheapest supermarket in town and they're not gonna be able to serve the entire town but to that group of people who want to be part of it it becomes a community touch point and it becomes it's a nice thing Uh, And I think that's good. Um, So I'm all for cooperatives and exploring alternative ways of running an enterprise. I just don't think any particular way of running an enterprise should be favored, um, you know, through, you know, by through legal punishment and of of those who don't do it. And I don't think any particular form of enterprise should be punished uh, because somebody doesn't like it.
0: Okay. Um Are you familiar with the phrase, all that groks is God?
1: Yes, I grok.
0: <laughs> okay. Um Blood Fairy posted a picture of her tattoo in AMA questions, wants to know what you think of it. And also I would like to know could you explain what the hell this
1: means? <laughs> Okay, so um, this is actually refers to the book a *Strangers in a Strange Land* um, by um, Robert Heinlein. I, I still, I still got a little bit of the book left to finish, but um, the word "grok" is like, it's like a word of, and understanding probably doesn't necessarily fully capture what grokking is, but "grok" just means to kind of truly get it, in a sense, like it just like this level of understanding. Because what happens is, like in the book, it's about this guy, Robert Valentine um or i forget his exact name it's something valentine um who because robert valentine is also the chair of the dutch libertarian party also a very good guy um but basically what happens is he was raised on like i think mars or something or some other planet and uh, basically, so he learned like he has like a whole different way of thinking, different language. It's, it's a really good book. So basically, you're seeing sort of the world through his eyes and you're seeing like political institutions, social institutions through the eyes of this person who's never experienced a human who's never really experienced the world before. And uh, it's, it's just a really fascinating book, but he's constantly uses this word grok when he understands things. So like there's, there's all these humans that are constantly trying to like, explain to him like, this is how things work. This is why these things are. This is why you can't do that. And when he gets it, he's like, okay, I grok it. Okay.
0: Um <laughs> she says, uh, for real though, does he like my tat? yeah <laughs> I... sorry, go ahead, I do.
1: I like it., I, got... I think I can do one more.
0: okay, last question from dash uh Dash writes hello, Alex, how would you feel on a tax on profit margins where reinvesting in your company wouldn't be taxed?'
1: Okay, um, one, I'm not really a fan of any tax. Um, and I generally avoid discussions of like, is this tax better than that tax? But taxes on profits to me, is like particularly bad. Um, the, especially like, basically the way this is raised here is you're saying, okay, well, we just wanna encourage companies to reinvest in themselves. And I, I get the thinking, the idea is like, okay, well, if they reinvest back in themselves, they may pay their labor a little bit more. But yet, but the, thing is that the, the things that the, the goods and services that society demands are, 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 are diffuse. So if a company only reinvests in itself, that capital may not go elsewhere to some other good or service that's gonna make our lives better. that will create other jobs for someone else. Um, it just slows down the movement of capital. And then that that's gonna start reducing the amount of overall opportunities. And that's like the, always my thing when people try to like, like put costs on business because they just wanna punish business, is like they don't realize like all the side effects. So for example, like going back to the minimum, this could be a minimum wage, this could be a tax, this could be new regulations. These are all things that eat away at the, 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 the profits of a business. And that doesn't just reduce the profits be like, well, who cares? They have all these profits like they can they can have less. But that also reduces sort of the return on capital, which means if they need to raise money to keep the business going or to do something cool so that way they, the business can grow and serve, do what it's doing better, it can't raise that capital because it can't provide enough of a return compared to other investments um, to compete for that capital. Okay, so basically, what you do is you when you when you punish an industry um, with these costs, you might end up lowering their return relative to the risk that it take that, that that investors are taking that they just won't invest in that industry anymore, and you can stunt its growth, um, which can be pretty uh, bad. And I uh, I I I'll talk about tariffs, tariffs are tax, and they it's the same effect. Bottom line is you impose any cost, you're going to change decision making, and oftentimes there is a cost. There is going to be some sort of cost that you will never see. Um, and you will never know to to that cost because it's got to be paid somewhere. And oftentimes those te- those those gains that would have been compounded over time, instead you're compounding losses over time.
0: Okay. All right. So that's our last query there. I really appreciate you coming out, Alex. Uh, it's been fantastic. Really appreciate your thoughts here.
1: No problem. Loved it. And uh, yeah, no, I'll be glad. You know, if, if you guys want me back at some point, um, I'm more than glad to come back. But otherwise, this has been delightful.
0: All right, yeah, we'd love to be back. If you want to email me uh, the link to your video on minimum wage, I'll post that in announcements.
1: Okay, sounds good. We'll do.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.